Welcome to Parallax by Anka Kalra, a podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology and the best from the US Cardiology Review. Published every second Monday, Anka Kalra, MD, interventional cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, USA, speaks with legendary cardiologists, reviews late-breaking trials, and interviews authors of our latest and best US cardiology review articles. We call them hashtag audio articles. Parallax is the effect whereby the position or direction of an object appears to differ when viewed from different positions. So this podcast is your fix of reliable updates on all things cardiology by someone from a non-traditional background who is always looking at the industry from a new angle. Now, here's your host, Anka Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. So before we start uh, the podcast um, with Dr. Naidu, which is uh, the second segment of the uh, series that I did with him on uh, mentorship and work-life balance. Um, I just wanted to mention some of the other work uh, I'm going to be doing with Ratcliffe at um, the Transcatheter Cardiovascular Therapeutics and the American Heart Association meetings this year. Uh, Some of you may also be traveling to San Francisco and Philadelphia, which is where these meetings are respectively, and I hope to see you there. Um, We will be recording Uh, lots of key opinion leader interviews and peer-to-peer discussions on some of the key late-breaking trials and other studies being presented at these meetings. I am particularly excited about Twilight and Ideal. You know, these are the two trials um, that are going to be presented at TCT. So recording some of these uh, videos with uh, uh, with the uh, investigators uh, is something that I'm, uh, you know, looking forward to as well as um, actually getting um, the legend himself on one of uh, our forthcoming podcast episodes, uh, you know, Dr. Stone, Greg Stone um, from Cardiovascular Research Foundation. Um, Also a few weeks ago, um, um, you know, our European, uh, but also uh, lots of our North American colleagues uh, from across the world descended to Paris um, at the annual uh, European Society of Cardiology uh, Congress. And, um, you know, there were some really interesting trials uh, including uh, Themis, T-H-E-M-I-S, uh, DAPA, HF, Paragon, HF, E-M-P-A-R-E-G, um, Ariande, uh, sorry for the, 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 the word salad here, um, ISAR React, you know, just to name a few, you know, these trials were presented um, at the Blockbuster European Society of Cardiology 2019 meeting. And, um, you know, these discussions, um, are actually available at ratcliffcardiology.com. So um, if you didn't get a chance to descend in Paris or, you know, get a hold of these conversations uh, across other platforms, um, you know, our colleagues from North America and and Europe have put together a series of interactive videos for you um, that you can um, access um, on ratcliffcardiology.com. Thanks again for listening to Parallax and, and, generously giving us your feedback uh, across different social media platforms, uh, you know, including Twitter and Facebook. Uh, We are genuinely, genuinely appreciative of your time that you take to have a listen to the conversations we are having with, uh, you know, cardiologists from North America. And, you know, our hope is that we can, um, you know, get some of our European colleagues uh, to have these podcast conversations with us as well. Um, do send in your feedback to me personally. Um, you can send a direct message on Twitter. You can email me. You can email 
the team at Parallax at Ratliff. Um, but do send your feedback, rate us, review us um, on Apple Podcasts uh, or on SoundCloud or Spotify. Your feedback means a lot to us. Uh, you know, it helps us grow. It, it um, inspires us to have more meaningful, more pur- more purposeful conversations with with cardiologists. It, we we would love to bring content that you think is is helpful to you clinically, uh, personally, professionally in your professional lives uh, and. You know, that's what we would hope to do. Um, so don't shy away from, you know, feedback, whether it's positive, negative, constructive criticism. We want to hear it all because um, we obviously want to grow for you. Uh, thanks again and enjoy uh, the following episode on work-life balance with Dr. Naidu. Welcome back to Parallax. Um, I have the honor of uh, having with me uh, Professor Naidu. Uh, Dr. Naidu and I had a conversation in our first segment uh, on work-life balance. Uh, you know, to the listenership who are new um, to Parallax, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for taking the time to listen to our show. Um, to introduce everyone, uh, not that Dr. Naidu needs any introduction, but you know, just uh, for, for the new listeners, um, Dr. Naidu is a professor, tenure professor of medicine at uh, New York Medical College. He's uh, the director of the cardiac catheterization labs uh, at Westchester Medical Center. He also directs um, the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Center of Excellence. Very few of such centers exist nationally or, if, if you may, uh, across the planet, uh, actually. Uh, so it's, it's my incredible uh, honor and pleasure of uh, having my mentor uh, and, if I may call him, my friend, uh, Dr. Naidu on the show again. Dr. Naidu, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be back. Um, so, um, since we've released, you know, since the time we released our last show, um, which talked about mentorship, we've received some great feedback, you know, in person, both you and I, uh, on on direct messages or emails, uh, but also on public platform like Twitter, we've you know, people have been gracious and we, we thank everyone who's taken the time to listen to our conversation and found it useful and meaningful. You know, that's the purpose of uh, Barrel Axes, to have conversations which are meaningful to professionals, um, not only in cardiology or cardiovascular medicine or interventional cardiology, but across the board in medicine and allied healthcare professionals. So thank you uh, for your generosity on Twitter. Um, and and other social media platforms. Uh, Dr. Naidu, would you like to add anything to the feedback that we've received? Well, I think um, you know, this is the first time I've been on a podcast, and um, certainly the first one with you. And I think that after we recorded that, it struck me as uh, uh, very clear that these types of discussions don't really happen outside of individual hospitals and individual fellowship programs and whatnot. And, and many people go into their careers uh, really trying to fend for themselves without real mentorship or even an idea of where they want to go um, and some of the challenges that lay ahead. So I think uh, people can do this with anybody that they come across. You're doing it with me, but pretty much anybody that has <laughs> moved um, up to the mid-career or even higher you sit them down, it's like sitting down, you know, a, a, a grandparent. You can learn a lot about uh, what, how they put things in context and the mistakes they've made and, uh, you know, really put um, uh, the career into a framework that is digestible for everybody at different levels. So I, I do think that 
uh, I've been recommending that even my friends uh, listen to it because sometimes it, it allows some self-reflection that can help uh, pretty much anyone, I believe. Uh, yes, I agree. Um, I think self-reflection is very important, is key, has been uh, the key for my growth in, in the past one year. Um, and I, I think whether we're going through good times or bad times, I think self-reflection is, is a very important element, not only for our professional lives, but also our personal lives, which I think is a, is a great segue into our next topic for this podcast, um, which is work-life balance. And <clears throat> you know, you and I are very active across all social media platforms. Uh, you know, we share both our professional uh, journeys as well as our personal journeys. Um, and, you know, I've really enjoyed, I actually love um, what you share on, on Facebook, particularly with, with the time that you've spent with your son uh, during the summer. Uh, you know, it's, it's so refreshing. Uh, to see people who, um, you know, you want to emulate or, uh, you know, people who you look up to, to actually also demonstrate that they are very normal, uh, you know, human beings who enjoy spending time with family and friends and who really cherish and value relationships, you know, because I think at the end of it all, at least that's what I think, and I know that's what you think as well, is, you know, human connection and how we foster that connection with one another is the real currency of all of that we do. Um, and so I, I'll let you talk more about it, obviously. You are, you are my guest. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand over the pedestal to you uh, to talk more about work-life balance and educate us and teach us on how you've struck that balance and what were the challenges and how, how you deliberately delve into um, you know, making sure that... Uh, you know, tasks or things are are balanced across the spectrum of your life as a whole? Yeah, I think that's a, a very important question. And the first thing I'll say about that is that, uh, you know, we hear about all the time as you're young, you got to strike a work-life balance. You got to make sure the things that are important to you um, are prioritized in equal adequate um, so that uh, at the end of the day, you don't look back and feel that you sort of changed anything in your life that was uh, meaningful to you. And I think the first lesson I'll tell people is uh, is that nobody's perfect in this regard. And I think it's a trial and error. Um, I'll tell you my story because it is a personal story. Um, I think most of us, you know, um, who are listening to this call really have a lot of ambition and aspirations to make some things of themselves. All doctors do, to be honest. Uh, to go into this field of medicine means that you uh, uh, oftentimes believe there's a higher calling. Uh, of something that you hold dear and that you uh, want to contribute to society, either one patient at a time or across the field. And oftentimes, that is a drive that uh, forces us uh, inadvertently to put everything else on the side. Um, you know, we do this uh, pretty rigorously through once you get college, then medical school, then residency and, and fellowship. And the way those things are organized is really has nothing to do with work-life balance. It has to do with work. It has to do with prioritizing the patient in front of you, never leaving that patient's side until the work is done uh, or the patient is safe, and doing the same thing with everything in the career that goes along with that, including papers, including presentations you have to give for conference the next day, for a conference or whatnot. Um, those things to prioritize and they have to get done. And the challenge of work-life balance is twofold. One is that it really takes a good assessment of where you want to be in your work and where you want to be in your life. 
And the problem is we can teach as much as we want, but you oftentimes don't know those things until uh, it's in retrospect. So you may come to a point where you say that I want to do more for my life, or I want to do more for my work. And we, are, we have so much more ways of organizationally looking at that for work, but very few ways of looking at that for life. And I think a recent article about, uh, that was shared on Twitter, I think earlier this year, and shared by Roxana Moran, was a physician who, um, by the time she decided that she wanted to have kids, was no longer able to have kids. I'm not sure you saw that anchor, but I think it's a very personal story that I think is very commonplace. I have, uh, I have actual friends who are in the same boat. And I think the lesson in that is that sometimes we don't know or take the time to realize what's most important to us. And some of those things you don't even realize. You don't know how important fatherhood is to you until you have kids. You may not realize how important marriage is to you until you're married. You may not realize a lot of these things uh, because you don't, all you can do is guess about those things until you actually experience it. So um, the first thing is that, which is that you have to be proactive about it, but you have to be very self-reflective about it and you have to have the conversations um, and, and those are difficult. And even then, I will tell you, you will make mistakes. So in my own career, I think uh, many people know, hopefully everybody knows that I am divorced. I was uh, married for 10 years. I have a very good relationship, uh, excellent relationship with my ex, and obviously an amazing relationship with my son. And I think, uh, I don't think I made any mistakes per se, other than what I just mentioned to you, which is that I probably prioritized the career just the same way all of you guys do, uh, or most of you guys do. And I think, uh, you know, my ex is a uh, plastic surgeon and also very type A and also prioritized her career in a large way. Uh, we're both very uh, ambitious individuals. And so I think, uh, you know, we probably didn't prioritize the life part of it as much as the career part. We were very good supporters for our career part and to this day. We actually share our successes in career and whatnot. And we obviously um, share and uh, discuss at length all of the things related to my son. Um, but not in the context of a, of a romantic relationship. So that's personal, but I'll tell you that uh, what I've learned from that is that you have to not just do things because they need to be done, but rather really a good assessment of where your life is, what you want, who you want to be with, what will make you happy. And then over time, compartmentalize those things in a way that they don't affect each other. So one of the things that I did, and it's uh, indicative, uh, in indicated on my Facebook, really is that I have two lives. I have my work life. And I have my private life. Now, people see both of them. But I think it's very clear on my Facebook that they're very distinct. I do not let one uh, contaminate the other, in a way, for lack of a better word. And it goes one direction, really. You don't want work contaminating your life uh, or your family life. Uh, life can obviously contaminate work because that's how it has to exert some influence to make sure that it, uh, it breathes. But I think um, you've got to be conscious of what, what truly makes you happy and you have to do all the things that make you happy, not just uh, one or two things. And so I made sure um, uh, over time that I didn't do as much work from home or uh, literally any work from home. And I did all my work, including papers or presentations, um, obviously clinical work, uh, only while I'm at work. So I would only leave work when I'm done with those things and I would uh, make sure that I put off the next day or whenever uh, when other types of work can get done at a cadence that allows them all to be done by deadlines that are set by me and, and uh, whoever is uh, requesting my, um, my work. So, for example, what that really means, though, is that you have to be extremely good at time management, not just in the given course of the day, but in the 
three, six month landscape of your career where if they ask you to review more articles, they ask you to do a book chapter, they ask you to do presentations, um, you have to have a good assessment of whether you can do those things in the time allotted based on your skills as a time management individual. So what that really means though, is that you have to have an assessment of whether you're good at time management. So for example, if you have five things to do in a day, how often is it you get those five things done? If it's pretty often, 95% plus, you're pretty good at time management. And you add more things onto it, and then you see how you do. If you start flipping on things, then you have to be honest with yourself. And as, as the landscape evolves in terms of things coming at you uh, for participation, you have to really assess what you can do and what you can't do. It is much better to say no to something that you had a, a poor chance of getting done and saying that I can do it at a certain time in the future if the opportunity comes back. Then accepting something for fear of not getting another opportunity and failing. Everybody remembers failures, okay? And those failures will uh, not let you get those opportunities again. So it's better to have fewer successes than more successes and more failures. And so, um, the key point of work-life balance is time management. And when you talk about time management, it's really about how good is your assessment of how long it will take you to do things. Understanding that shit happens, so to speak. So you have to fudge in there that shit can happen and that will throw you off, but you still have to factor that in to get it completed. There's was a nice article, and I don't know if I can, I can't dig it up now, but where they talked about time management and they, and they talked about it more in terms of people who are always late. Um, and now people who are always on time get mad at people who are always late. I think we all can all relate to that. And I stopped getting mad at people who are always late. And the very simple reason is because people who are typically late are typically people who aren't as good at time management. They are not good at assessing the time it takes for them to do a task. If you do that, they did a research study showing that People who are late all the time are people who, if they have to go to the supermarket to come back, they tell you that it'll take them 15 minutes when in actuality it always takes them 25. And other people who are very good at time management, they'll tell you it takes them 25 because they know and they've internalized and then they can divide up the day into aliquots of time. That's the, that's the key to work-life balance. It comes down to understanding what you can get done and making sure that that does not uh, erode into uh, the day-to-day -day life. And I will tell you that uh, one of the best ways to maintain a very healthy career is to recharge. And so there's many ways to recharge, and that is the life part. That is either exercise, or that is um, hobbies, or that is obviously your family. Uh, but there's something in your uh, life that allows you to, to recharge and makes your career uh, much more vigorous when you're there and also allows the world to see that you are you know, human in that way and not just a machine who's doing, uh, doing, doing the work, but really um, you know, doesn't have a multi-dimensional multi personality. Maybe I'll stop there because I think I mentioned a lot, but uh, we can see where you want to go from there. Uh, sure. So first of all, you know, thank you for being so open and vulnerable uh, on the show with our listenership. Uh, I know you've shared your personal story and I think there's a lot to learn from, but, but also there is a lot to acknowledge. Um, you know, I, I genuinely value people who um, acknowledge, uh, the, acknowledge their vulnerabilities and are open 
uh, open-hearted uh, about um, you know their own journeys and and paths and and struggles that they've had in their life. So you know, I genuinely, very honestly, you know, not only me, I think everyone from Parallax uh, genuinely thanks you for being uh, so open and so vulnerable and so real. Um, I think that it it would come across um, exactly like that. So. Uh, I wanted to thank you for that and, and also congratulate you for that. <clears throat> and then, uh, you know, I think, I, I think, you know, talking about, uh, you know, time management, uh, that's something um, that I was not good at, uh, you know, when I, uh, I'm, this is my third year, so I'm still very early on in my career. But, you know, the very first year um, when, you know, we were expecting with our first child, who's now a little over two, um, and, um, you know, the second one's on the way, um, um, you know, I would get, I would get work, uh, home, um, on, on weekends and, you know, that this would largely be work, which is, you know, academic or, you know, has, um, a, a, you know, scholarly activity work. So whether it's reviewing a paper or committing to a book chapter and then finishing it, or, um, uh, you know, even, uh, you know, working on. Uh, editing a manuscript or writing a manuscript, I, I would do that a lot. Um, and it, it, I agree with you that it over time, you don't realize you think you can do it and you can handle it and you can manage it as you did in fellowship. But, you know, as you get along the journey of life, you know, you realize that, you know, there's life that, that, that is happening around you and you have to be a part of it. Uh, you've, you've, sort of, you've signed up for it, so you have to be a part of it. And you have to be a part of it, not just by being present, you know, physically, but actually being genuinely present in, in complete mindful way. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, which is what you've shared and, you, you know, which is what you deliberately do when you, uh, when you said that you're not deliberately getting work back home, you're deliberately being very mindful of, of being present as a whole when you are being present uh, with family or with friends or, or with your son. Um, and I think that is yes. something which I am begin. I, I I wouldn't say that I am as advanced as you are, um, uh, but I am. I've become very very mindful of it, uh, you know. And I've I, I tried to catch up on on tasks w which are outside of my uh, outside of my jobs, outside of my clinical responsibilities. Obviously, they they come first when we are at our jobs, um, and we have to make sure that we're taking good care of patients and. Um, we're up to up to task when it comes to patient care, but after that, if there's a little bit of downtime, I try and try and catch up on tasks which are scholarly or um, you know which are extracurricular from a professional aspect um, when I'm at work, and then try and not take things back home and try and be yeah. home with my son as much as I can, and you know give him all my energy, all my focus when I'm with him because I'm with him for a for a very few hours in the day. And when I'm on call, I don't even see him that day. Um, mm -hmm. So that's something, so thank you for that. I think that's, that's extremely important for, uh, for, each, for each one to listen, right? For uh, people in residency or fellowship or you know, advanced fellowships or any, any stage of the career. And I think people who are good at time management like yourself who can multi, who can, I shouldn't say multitask because I think multitask is sort of, uh, we all, all of us do multitask, but I think when we are on a particular task, we're only single tasking. 
um, and and that's how we that's how is really making sure you're keeping track of all the tasks, understanding what their deadlines are, and making sure they all get done in the requisite amount of time. It's really multiple or, uh, organizational skills, but you're only tasking it one at a time. Exactly. And you could jump in that, jump, jump, jump back and forth. So, for example, I would just, I, you know, I, I write papers, but I wrote papers a lot more before I was full professor, to be honest. Now I, I uh, edit a lot more. But I would, I would be very good at um, developing the skill to do a cat and then in the turnaround time, jump right back to the paper and uh, not miss a beat in terms of re- recollecting my thoughts and where, where I was thinking. So my point in saying that is really you're not multitasking. You're only doing one task at a time, but your brain is working uh, and keeping track of where other things are hap- or where other things are left off so you can jump back into it. And that is a skill. Many people can't do that. They do a case. You know, our day is, is broken up into multiple cases, maybe five or six cases in the day. Mm-hmm. And many people will say they don't know what happened between the cases. Maybe they saw a patient or two, but then the other times, maybe they got some coffee or they uh, they – they don't know what happened to the day. I mean, obviously, this turnaround in every hospital, you got 20 to 30 minutes, um, and sometimes an hour in hospitals that are sure. uh, not sure ready to turn around. Sure. That time is important time. Yes, at the end of the day, you can say, oh, I did six cases today, so I couldn't do anything else. I don't know about that. Uh, you can. There is time in between. It's just you have not developed the skill sets to be able to maximize your day. And I think what I've gotten better at is maximizing what I've been able to do in any given eight to 12 hour day so that when I come home, uh, I am not doing that. And I'm happy with what I've been able to accomplish in the day. So, so that is the skill that takes time. I was not good at it in the beginning, I, but I, I'll tell you, I used to um, practice that. And I used to uh, write down uh, almost every week, sort of uh, all the things, all the different buckets. I used to write a bucket of clinical, uh, teaching, research, and under each one I would, I would hand write out what are the things I'm doing clinically? What are the things I'm doing for prone building? What are the things I'm doing for uh, research? What are the projects? So I think by, and by doing that physically, um, I trained my brain to do that without having to write it down. So my brain, and it sounds arrogant now, I guess I'm saying it like this, but my, I, my, I'm always, I always have in my head a task list of everything that has to be done ongoing and things are sort of deleted from there as they're done and then there's added to it. I think we all do this, but I think even those of us who are very smart, um, I wrote it down for a long time until I didn't have to do that practice. And so that allowed me to, in the middle of the day between cases, uh, see what can be done in the time I have. So I have I, uh, the next case is for 45 minutes. Well, what can be done in 45 minutes or in 30 minutes? I still get my coffee. I drink three cups, three cups of coffee a day, maybe more. But I still get the coffee. Then I, I still hang out with friends at work from times. I uh, still grab lunch. Um, and then I, uh, I I find a way to maximize the time in between. And I used to call them the, the, the time in the cracks, in the crevices, uh, the time that's uh, lost in the, in the the uh, between the pillows. In other words, it's the time that is not really there or could disappear if you're not good at looking for it. And I think that is, if you add up in the course of a day, there's hours, there's two or three hours in the day that um, that are uh, oftentimes wasted uh, because we're not able to shift gears <clears throat> into different modes. You know, you, you've ex- you've actually described this so beautifully. Um, it's, it's so. What I do is something very. It's actually very similar to what you do. Is I just have a mental task list of things that need to be done and needed to get done at, at a certain date and a certain time, and I have these. Um, 
little sticky notes in my head, which I keep mm-hmm. for different uh, deadlines uh, and, you know, for tasks, for example, that post this podcast, you know, we've been wanting to do this for about a couple of weeks now. You know, we both, you've been busy. I've been busy. If I had a really busy weekend call, you had a really busy weekend. We were wanting to do this Sunday evening when I got called in for another STEMI, um, you know, but then you said we will get this done. I knew we will get this done. Uh, there was sort of a mental checklist in my mind that, you know, I, I have to get in touch with Dr. Naidu again on Tuesday to record this. Um, and, you know, here we are uh, recording this episode. Um, right. so, so, you know, and, and um, you know, but just how you've, the way you've broken this down into how the day goes by, you know, particularly for someone in, in a procedural field, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, surgery or interventional cardiology or even electrophysiology, there is downtime between cases and that downtime is crucial. Like that downtime is diamond uh, if you can utilize it uh, because you can get a lot done, like you said, uh, you know, quickly turning around a manuscript that you're a co-author on that needs to be edited, reviewing, um, uh, you know, a paper, you know, which is a short commentary um, or, you know, signing up uh, or registering for for a conference, um, you know, and you can still yes. do that while you are, you know, grabbing coffee, having, you know, lunch with colleagues, uh, you know. Absolutely. You could be, not, exactly. Yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Exactly. So I keep a list and there, and you know in your head how long each one takes. So if I have 15 minutes, yes, I can probably book my place to TCT in that 15 minutes. Or if I have a half an hour, I can re-edit an editorial. If I have an hour, I can close the door and really write a, a paper or do something else. So it all depends. And some of that time, you know, I'm a busy clinician. So some of that time is, uh, you know, my coordinator coming in and, and she has a bunch of patients I need to talk to or um, labs up to review or whatever it is. So there's parts of the day where, where that happens. Um, so you have to be good at that. I think the other point I want to make, though, is it's not to say that uh, some people may take my words literally and then they become very antisocial. I am probably one of the more social people in my uh, institution. I, I, I keep my door open all the time. Um, and I uh, certainly uh, have lunch with friends pretty much every day at work. And, I, um, and wherever I go on the floors, I'm talking to people all the time. So you may come out with the impression that I'm all over the place, yet I make those interactions extremely meaningful. I'm not purposefully, not like I'm, oh, I'm going to talk to that person and make sure that there's a meaningful there so I develop a relationship. No, it's more that I enjoy the social interaction, but it doesn't have to go on for hours and, uh, and you can move on to other things. So you need to, the other part of work-life balance is that you need to have a life at work. So work can't just be work. Work has to be life too. If work is just work, you will not be able to do all the things that we're trying to talk, to, talk about on these podcasts. Work has to be fun. The people you interact with have to become friends or at least people that you enjoy their company while you're at work. It has to be an environment that you're looking forward to go to um, and being part of. And so that does mean you have to create that environment and do your part to make that, uh, that community uh, as vibrant and fun and, and proactive in the tripartite mission or whatever mission you want um, as, uh, as it can be. So I spend a lot of my time and energy doing those things. I take my team out for dinners and I, I buy cat lab um, uh, lunch from time to time. And I, uh, you know, I interact with all the different uh, faculty, those who may not like me so well, as well as people who do adore me. 
and uh, and and I think that's important so that when I go to work, it's a place I like to be. Um, so that's another part of work-life balance. Uh, and one other thing that I want to say that um, I want to say before, when you were talking about the interactions with your family and friends, or even at work, is that I also do something else that I think many people don't do. They 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 ask. So I ask people if I'm doing a good job in some of these things. So for example, um, at, at home, I will be very attentive to uh, not just whether I think I'm spending enough time with my son, for example, but whether he thinks I'm spending enough time with him or does he think I'm on the phone too much? Um, those kinds of things. And believe it or not, yes, he thinks I'm on the phone too much. But you know, obviously he doesn't have much context. He's a 10-year-old son. But it doesn't matter. His perception, as we talked about last time, is reality. And uh, you take the feedback and you do the best you can to um, change that perception. And so uh, I would I would argue that you should do that all the time and you should do that at work too. So when I sense that somebody is upset at me or sense that something else, I will ask the impartial third person. Um, what do you think? I'm getting the sense that blah, blah, blah. Uh, what do you think about that? Do you think I could have handled that differently? Or it doesn't mean you have to do it, <clears throat> but A, it shows that you're contemplative and self-reflective and humble. And B, um, maybe you will just learn something that could help you move forward or even, frankly, apologize from time to time to, if you may have uh, overstepped or been too domineering or whatever the case might be. So I think um, those are all lessons that uh, you learn as you get older, and, uh, hopefully wiser, um, but they also make you stronger and they change your perception of you uh, uh, dramatically when you do those things. Yes. Yeah, so um, life at work is something which you brought up, which uh, I think is uh, is crucial. Uh, you know, it's something which I realized very quickly, you know, early on in my career, uh, that you have to enjoy, you know, getting in uh, to work every morning. And um, you have to be comfortable, you have to be uh, joyful, uh, you have to look forward to the people that you're going to work with. Um, and if it requires effort on your part to begin with, because you're new to a particular or a certain environment, then you have to sort of be the champion in leading that effort, um, is something that I did, um, you know, as I, as I transitioned to the, to my new role, uh, with the, with the new institution is something I did very mindfully. And, uh, you know, there was a purpose behind it. I wanted to really get to know my colleagues uh, you know, because I was someone who was coming in to become part of a family. Um, so it was something which I, I did, uh, you know, with, with purpose and with, with a lot of mindful intent and good intent. And, you know, it's paid rich dividends. I mean, I, I really enjoy coming to work. Um, um, I have a great time with my colleagues. Um, it's it's more like a family. Like you said, we've, we have cat lab potluck every month. We all bring in uh, you know, food. Um, and, um, you know, it's like having, having lunch together or going, going for, you know, coffee together, you know, these little gestures mean so much to the team. Right. And also mean so much to you in person as well. Like, I mean, I, I really enjoy and value, um, the conversations I exchange with, with colleagues or with, with senior colleagues or with allied healthcare professionals when I'm at work you know, sharing coffee or sharing lunch. Uh, there's a lot to be learned about people, their backgrounds, you know, about the hospital administration, about patients. I mean, there's a, 
a lot of information to be imbibed in these sessions, which are social sessions, like you said. Uh, and then, you know, the other uh, uh, very important uh, message that you shared, uh, which I would like to reiterate for the listenership, because I think it's, 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 uh, it's an incredibly important message. And I think we've sort of, uh, we talked about it uh, when I uh, got Madhav on the show, uh, and that was on feedback. And, you know, constructive criticism may be too big of a word for this particular um, aspect of feedback, but, you know, feedback as in, you know, I, I'm, I'm constantly seeking feedback from, you know, nurses, from cat lab staff, from house staff, from nurses on, in, the, in the cardiac intensive care unit. You know, how do you think I've, I've adjusted to the environment? How do you think I'm doing? Is there anything you want me to do differently? And, you know, if you come across as genuine, in my experience, and I, I'm sure you would agree, you know, people will give you genuine feedback and they would mean good for you, you know, because they're invested in you, you're invested in them. And that comes across if you are coming from a genuine place in your heart um, is, what I, is what I have experienced. Uh, and I think it has paid rich dividends to me in my growth, uh, not only as a professional, but also as a person, um, has, has paid rich dividends. Um, so I just wanted yeah. to um, sort of reiterate that. Um, yeah, one of the toughest things to do is if someone gives you feedback, um, even if your gut instinct is like, that's not who I am, uh, I'm not going to apologize for something where I'm not that person. They're, they're misrepresenting me. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Your first reaction should be, wow, I didn't realize that I came across that way. Yeah. That's it. And then your first reaction to that will be, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it that way. Um, I'll try and do better next time. Yes. And you know how hard it is to say that as a doctor? <laughs> and because we're not trained to say that to our patients oftentimes, right? Because medical legal and whatever it is, a lot of controversy in that area. But certainly with our colleagues and staff and people we have to work with on a day-to-day basis and certainly our family and friends, we should have no problem saying that uh, because it makes us human and it, we grow from it and they realize it, it, that it creates a very strong personal connection when you do that. Um, and again, all this is about relationship building. and There's no better way to build a relationship than to really uh, connect. And you do not connect when you're arguing with somebody about something that, you know, that you think is a different of opinion of your character or their character or your behavior or their behavior. It, it, there's no connection in that. In that um, discussion, there will never be a connection. So why not go the route of the connection and then you can sit back and digest it um, and, uh, and then figure where you want to go from there. How you want to incorporate it into your character or behavior. Um, and also it kind of ends the conversation there when you do that. And that's what you kind of want to do as, as, a, as a physician leader or as a physician. You want to emulate the kind of behavior that you would emulate um, for your child, which is how to take responsibility, how to be higher than, uh, than uh, you know, the, the, the kind of uh, clamoring on the street. Okay, we're doctors and we're supposed to act that way. And, um, and we have to all work together. So, so why not emulate that kind of behavior? Sure. Um, so let, let me just uh, <clears throat> um, let me just pick your brains on this. Uh, I think it's um, it's it's maybe this is a hard question, um, and I'm 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 deliberately bringing this question up, um, you know, because uh, this is I've sort of seen this happen, particularly with the millennials, um, you know, and that is the avoidance to have. Um, a hard conversation in person 
with someone. Um, because there is the convenience of picking up your phone and sending a text message. And, you know, people can be um, rude, people can misbehave um, just because they have the luxury of picking up the phone and texting someone, but not actually having the courage to walk up to that person and say what they said in a text message to someone's to someone in person. Uh, I mean, I, I I don't know if this question has any is, is sounds relevant to you or you think is even relevant to discuss. But it is a genuine question from me because you know I have experienced this, and you know I'm I'm bringing this up because this is, you know, we're talking work life balance, and this is more, um, you know, a question from life than it is from work. But I just wanted to wanted to ask you. Um, you know, what you thought about this phenomenon. Um, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, even before texting and uh, uh, email communication, um, people in general are non-confrontational because you have to, um, you're worried you're going to lose an argument or you're going to get too emotional or um, it's just a, a visceral reaction that you don't want to uh, elevate your emotions to such a, such a large extent. Um, it's like getting into a fight on the playground. Nobody wants to do that. And also there's the spectacle aspect of it. But I, And so what ends up happening is people take the uh, easy route, which is to shoot off an email um, or to shoot off a text and wait for the response. And they can take their time to write exactly what they want to say and try to make it perfect. But lost in there is the emotions, both in terms of, A, how much you've been hurt, um, how passionate you are thinking about that incident, um, or, you know, how it's making you feel. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, when you're in an argument with somebody, those are the areas that allow you to be vulnerable enough to come to a, a common ground. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'll tell you, I'm not great at this either, but I had to be, as, as once I became a director, uh, dealing with people um, at multiple institutions that may uh, be tough to deal with, or maybe we just have personalities that might clash, and that, that means that it could be my personality too. But when that happens, you have to uh, figure out a way to actually talk. Mm -hmm. If you do not, then what happens is each of those people will talk to everybody else but you. Mm -hmm. And you set up different clicks. And so clicks happen because people don't talk. Um, backstabbing happens because people don't talk. And so I've learned this over time to the point that now if there is um, a problem, especially if I feel that someone is, there's a problem and now it's getting to that stage where they're talking to other people about it, uh, then you just have to find a way to talk to that person. And you can either do it on, uh, I think if you're not a, a director or something like that, you do it in common ground where you just you just find a time to talk. And uh, that can be done by text. That can be done by, hey, I heard this. Uh, I heard you might be upset about this. Let me know if you can talk later today. Or, or just say, I'd like to talk later today. Period. That's it. Now, that doesn't mean you're like coming up to show up a fight. It's, it's actually just saying that you like to talk about it. And, um, and then when you meet up, you basically, the best way to have a conversation is to say, hey, I heard that you're upset about this. You make it about emotions. It's always about emotions, right? If there's an mm -hmm. altercation or something, emotions. So I heard you might be upset about this, and I wanted to talk about that and make sure that we understood exactly, you know, what the intentions were. And, um, you know, certainly I don't want to, uh, I, I certainly don't want to have a, a weird feeling between us, whatever it is. And then 
you just say that. And then um, truth be told, the other person will then meet you halfway. They almost never come out guns, guns blaring, uh, blazing if you come out um, strong but soft-spoken and with an eagerness to find a middle ground. Now, you may not always find a middle ground. Certainly, if you're a director or a chief, uh, you may find a middle ground in terms of understanding and cooperation, but you still may have the final say in something. And that's a whole other art that needs to be discussed at some point, but how to get that's more of a discussion on how to get people uh, you know, to corral around your cause or something that you have taken the consensus opinion and figured out one direction and try to get everybody moving in that direction. We could talk about that another time. But you know, this conversation here now is really how to sort of squash all of these scuttlebutt by having an actual conversation with somebody. And I would highly recommend it. The only way to learn that skill is to start doing it, which mm-hmm. means that if you recognize that something is spiraling out because of uh, emails or because of an incident that now you're hearing that they're upset about it, or you're certainly upset about it, the best thing is to use the text um, to say you'd like to talk. Now, you could just call the person up, but I don't recommend that. I don't, I don't think you should blindly call somebody and interrupt their time just because you have the time to talk about something. You should schedule a time that is good for both of you guys within a very short time period, typically the same day. So if there's something happening, you'd want to talk on the same day because believe it or not, by the next day, if you resolved it, nobody will be talking about it. It's all done. Yeah. No, so um, it's it's refreshing to hear that from, from, a, from a leader like yourself who's, you know, director of, um, the cardiac cath labs and the interventional program uh, at a major academic medical institution, which actually brings me to my next topic, which maybe the will, will be the concluding topic for the podcast, uh, and I, I want to spend some time time talking about it. And that is how how do you cultivate um, a career in leadership? Um, you know, like for example, you know, for early careers, if they at some point in their career want to become the director of a cardiac cath lab or echo lab or an imaging laboratory or a research program or, or run a particular program under their leadership in their institution. How do you cultivate yourself to become that role um, that you envision for yourself? I think would be, yeah. a, would be a great um, sort of topic to discuss with you. Um, and, you know, have those yeah, insights. Think, um, you have to decide uh, there's a couple of things. One is, you know, do you really want to do it? Is it uh, something, why do you want to do it? So if everything you want to do in life, you may uh, make sure that it's something you want to do for the right reasons. Um, you know, to be a leader in something, say the cath lab, it's because uh, I would imagine um, not because of the title. None of these things are for the title. You don't make a lot of money doing this stuff. And the title is, uh, there's plenty of people with that title. Plenty of directors of the cath lab, plenty, plenty of cath lab. So it's really not about that. And you don't need to be a director of the cath lab to be a famous person. There's plenty of people out there who are not directors of the cath lab uh, who are quite uh, quite famous in, in our field. So it's not about that either. Um, so if you want to be a leader and start with the cath lab, uh, then you presumably are the kind of person who you have looked into yourself and, and realized that you can maybe motivate people, that people uh, tend to gravitate to your team. Um so these are personal skills that it's not like you, uh, you know, grew them, but uh, do you have that? In your circle of friends, do people tend to listen to you or gravitate towards you um, or not? Um, so, again, it's a lot of self-reflection. 
And why do they do that? Is it because you have the best ideas? Is it because you tend to motivate people? You tend to inspire people? And again, we talked about on our last podcast that people will give you feedback. I've been told that I am inspiring. People want to be on my team because it makes them feel um, like we're going somewhere. And um, uh, they trust my opinion, uh, you know, and uh, so listen to that stuff. I'm not saying if they don't say that, you can't do it. And you can certainly read a lot of books on leadership. I did that as well when I took my first job. And then when I was looking for other jobs um, to move uh, out of uh, Winthrop, I read more books on leadership skills, emotional intelligence skills. Uh, uh, So uh, people gave me books um, that I'm happy to share with people uh, that were very helpful in terms of uh, finding solutions to problems, um, inspiring teams. And those skill tips can be learned. But again, you got to find out whether it's something that you're passionate about and that you have an innate ability to do. To be a leader, you have to have a lot of organizational skills. You have to be able to inspire and motivate. You have to, uh, uh, for a Catholic in particular, you have to like the things that are not always very sexy, such as quality improvement, such as uh, building new cath labs, such as dealing with the Joint Commission and hospital administration, such as uh, billing and revenue, such as overhead and supply management. Um, and, uh, and if you can't, if you have trouble with, uh, with confront, confrontation of people, uh, director of the cath lab is not a position for you because you have to develop individual relationships of bi-directional respect with every single person in the cath lab, from nurses to techs, to the supply um, coordinators, to the physicians, to the referring to everybody. You have to develop individual, bi-directional respect, meaning they have to respect you and you have to respect them for what they what they do and for what you do. So you need to be a people person if you're going to be a director of the cath lab. You can't just be someone who sits in the office and does their cases and uh, and then is uh, pulled in when, when needed because it becomes very obvious to everybody in the cath lab that, that person is not really running the cath lab, but just sort of in the role. And that's not what you want to be. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, I, I think, um, you know, in general, you know, three to five years out, if you're a little precocious, uh, more than five to 10 years out, if you feel you need to develop those skills more, um, is a good time to be a director of the cath lab. Remember also, a director of the cath lab has to be uh, technically good and not have a lot of complications and has to be the guide for the rest of the cath lab, at least on paper, in terms of process improvement and sort of what we do and what we don't do in the cath lab uh, to maintain you know, efficacy and quality and safety. So that means you lead by example, not just by your mouth. And so um, the staff look at you, the physicians look at you, um, and uh, you know it's a lot of responsibility, certainly when you're young. But I think you need to, if you want to do it, you need to jump into it, understand that those are all the buckets that you have to participate in and over time excel at, even things that you don't necessarily find attractive. Um, but that's the job. And so it's, and every facet of the job has to be done well. No, no, this was, uh, this was a comprehensive answer. And um, uh, there's a lot to learn from each of those points that you mentioned. I mean, just like, you know, thank you for going into the details of like quality and um, you know, supplies and overhead and billing and revenue, uh, you know, like, you know, as someone, you know, I, w- I've, I wouldn't even like think of those things like right now when I asked you that question. But the fact that you just brought that up, you know, is enlightening for people who are listening because, you know, that's exactly the, 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 the idea behind the question is like what really, you know, goes behind the scenes 
or what it, what does it really take for someone to be in that position and do a good job um so no th- thank you so much for you know vividly explaining each of those points and going over them uh, i think they're going to be very helpful for our our listenership hey, um, remember for every position you have you do the you do the job for the person um there's different bosses there's different people looking so for administration it's is the lab efficient is the lab uh cost saving is the lab um able to get staff in and out uh without overtime um are you managing supplies are you bringing in the appropriate technology and getting rid of some technology um you know what is, that is what they're looking at are you raising the reputation of the institution by what you're doing in the cath lab are you able to uh, corral the physicians so they're not all going behind your back and talking to administrations or to your chief what kind of community are you building that's what administration wants to look at your chief may look at something else and your physicians may look at something else your referrings may look at and say well is this a lab that's good for my patients are my patients happy here are my uh, am i getting in and out of the cath lab very quickly do i have the uh, the time in the cath lab when i'm not in the office um you know do they have all the technologies that i need are they letting me advance my career uh are they, you see you see what i'm saying each person yep. has a different goal the, the staff the nurses have a different one they want to have job satisfaction they want to feel that they can advance in their career as well they want to see it feel like they have nursing education they want to feel like they have time for lunch they want to feel like they're not running around ragged they want to feel like they're not scared when they go into different cases because they've had proper in services um they have different things that they want and every single constituent um under a cath lab director you need to think as if you're in their shoes not just in their shoes but also in their shoes being how where they came from how they trained what is the aspiration of nurses and techs what are their goals what is their work life balance is it different than yours and so you have to look at all those things and that's why i say you got to be a people person because people people persons are really people who understand where the other person's coming from and do their best to make that person happy and that's what director of the cath lab uh, really is supposed to do Yes no thank you for that that was that was incredible what what a great answer I, i learned a lot from this conversation um so just um you know wrapping up um this podcast and thank you again for coming on the show um i really enjoyed um having conversations with you and you know having you on the show and you know the feedback has been phenomenal um just wrapping this podcast up you know tct is coming up uh, we're going to see each other in san francisco and yeah uh, at, at the end of the week um is there any particular trial or any particular talk or or data presentation or anything else anything else in particular uh, that you're looking forward to from from tct this year well i think there's more on dap there's more with Roxana Moran on twilight uh, there's a lot more coming in that area i think i'm looking forward to whether the shock classification that we came up with in may uh, with more data that just came out last week will be promulgated more in the shock uh, arena obviously i'm interested in the alcohol ablation and the new medications and uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy um those are the main things for me i mean there's obviously more in structural but not coming down too but for me those are the areas i focus on how about you Yeah no I'm I'm obviously looking forward to the to the dab studies like you mentioned uh congrats on the paper which was published uh you know last week which basically looked at uh, the the shock definition that you published uh, earlier this year and looked at uh, outcomes it was published in Jack um so congratulations on that I'm looking forward to our our session together um yep. as well uh and then just you know I, for me uh, you know 
it's it's I'll be at DCT after seven years. I've not been to DCT in the last six years, I believe. Wow. Last time I was yeah. at DCT was 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just looking forward to meeting everyone. You know, it's been uh, we've we uh, it's it's funny because you know we sort of interact so well with each other on social media that we feel that we've we're, we're close, but. I think, and we are close. I mean, obviously we are close, but I think it's very important to also keep meeting, you know, in person. I think just... just so, so this is a good way to end the conversation because like you said, we, we and other people, many people know each other online and you develop an online reputation just like we're talking about with texting and email, but that human interaction is very important. That's what builds the bond and the loyalty um, that uh, sustains for a lot longer duration. I, I for one, I have... The main reason I go to these conferences, honestly, is the people that I see only at the conferences, and we have had amazing friendships and experiences together. Some of the people in the ELM program, um, or even a lot of my mentors, I just love seeing them in the hallways and all that common shared experience uh, and uh, you know, opportunities that we've had. So, you know, we're building that, Ankur, because I know we have, uh, uh, you're presenting two things that we've done together at PCT. I'll be there, and I'll support you, and, um, and that's how it begins. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for everything. And I um, obviously I'm looking forward to the trip and looking forward to um, meeting with you and seeing you in person and spending some time with you and with uh, with all the other colleagues and friends. I mean, you know, that to me is the take home for every meeting that I that I'm at. You know, I just look forward to seeing friends and spending time with them. Um, So. So thanks again. Uh, Thank you for your time. you know, we've been over time, but that's okay because, you know, we've, we've, we've enjoyed these conversations and our listeners have enjoyed these conversations. So we're here for the listeners and, you know, thank you for uh, all that you've done to spread the word for the podcast and, um, you know, um, we'll continue to, and we'll look forward to having you back on the show. Thanks again, Dr. Sounds Nadu. good. My pleasure. Thank you. Andrew. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. Dear cardiologists, we want to make this podcast about you and for you. So please email us your critical thoughts, comments and questions at podcast at radcliffe-group.com and visit uscjournal.com for more information. You can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram at Radcliffe Cardiology for daily updates. Join thousands of cardiologists and become a Radcliffian by registering to radcliffecardiology.com. You will receive regular newsletters and gain access to hundreds of expert interviews, educational webinars, clinical cases, and peer-reviewed articles from our six medical review journals on general cardiology, interventional cardiology, arrhythmia and electrophysiology, cardiac failure, and vascular and endovascular surgery. Thank you.